Second Peter chapter 3, why don't you uh, turn there this morning. So we are two weeks, we're going to finish Second Peter next week. Um, and then we have a three-week time where we're just going to do a couple different things here and there. And then um, <laughs> it's Easter. So we'll be doing a quick three-week series walking through Easter, and uh, that's crazy that it's coming up on us. Time flies, doesn't it? Just keep that in mind. We're going to talk about that in a minute here. Second Peter chapter 3, remember Peter's wrestling with um, a number of false teachers uh, who've invaded the church. And the, the, the group, it seems, which we'll look at a little bit more specifically today, uh, there's some evidences of, and I think particularly in our passage today in chapter 3 of Second Peter, there's some evidences that this group of false teachers who have invaded the church, their primary objection to the teaching of Scripture is that there will, in fact, be a day of judgment. And so they're kicking against the idea of this thing called the day of the Lord, the day that, that God comes and brings judgment on his enemies and salvation for his own. And so this group of false teachers have come in and said, there is no such thing as judgment. You're going to see that today in the text. And, and, and so what Peter is trying to do is, is prepare his friends to stand up against that sort of false teaching. To have a perspective that they need to have. Because there are two things that occur if the teaching that there is no day of the Lord. If that is true, there are two huge ramifications to that. One, we can do whatever we want. We're going to talk about that next week. Two, we have no hope. And Peter's trying to make it abundantly clear to his friends that that, in fact, is not true. So read along with me, 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Peter says this, Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you, and in both letters I want to Stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder, so that you recall the words of that were previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, well, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since... Our ancestors fell asleep. All things continue as they have been since the very beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through those, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there for time's sake. Next week, it really is. This is a one message being split into two weeks. 
I want, I want to stop right there. What, what, what Peter does at the very beginning of chapter 3, he says, let me explain to you, my friends, why I'm even writing to you. And this is the second time I've written to you, okay? That's not too hard to figure out. First Peter, second Peter. This is the second time I'm writing to you, and I'm trying to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder. The idea of stir up means to shake. I'm trying to, to shake you awake. And I want to stir up within you this sincere understanding. Why does he need to shake us awake to a sincere understanding? Because you and I are world champion forgetters. We are the best at forgetting. We are amazing at forgetting. And then you put us in the, minute, in, in the moment of, of stress and tension, and, 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 and it just gets worse. We forget the most basic things. And in fact, I think we need to understand it's not just um, um, remember, it's not just forget, it's remember wrong. I mean, it's, it's all-encompassing forgetfulness. It's not forgetting what candy she likes. It's forgetting it's Valentine's Day. Gentlemen, that was free for you. A little reminder, very subtle. Just say amen. That's right, brother, amen. And just keep moving along. She'll never know. We have a little delivery service that we're going to put into place today. You just give me a text call. I can hook you up. She'll never know. But we're so good at forgetting. It's a terrible thing to be good at, isn't it? We're so good at forgetting. He says, I want to I remind you, stir you up, wake you up to, in your sincere understanding. That word sincere is a fascinating word. It means son-judged. Son-judged. Let me explain to you what, what, what we're talking about. Back in the day, potters would create their ceramics, their pottery, and they would do all the work, and then they would put it in the kiln, they'd fire it in the kiln, and when they would take it out of the kiln, they would take it out, and many times what would happen, there would be some small cracks, or maybe a chip here and there. And the way they would solve it, instead of being like, oh, this is just trash and pitching it, you can't do that, that's financially irresponsible for a potter in the day, so instead, what, uh, what the potters would do is they would melt wax into those chips or into those cracks. So it made the appearance of the pottery to be perfectly smooth. They would bring their, their pottery to market. They would set it up. And the buyer would come and would pick up the pottery. And the uninformed buyer would look at it and be like, yes, pay full price. But the informed buyer always picked up the piece of pottery and held it to the light. Because if you held the pottery to the light, that wax was translucent. You could see through it. And you realized and recognized how many flaws were actually in that piece of pottery. What Peter is calling for is an understanding that is lacking flaws, an understanding that has no error in it, an understanding that, that, that is not filled with blemishes, a sincere understanding. How, how, where do you get a sincere understanding? What, what, what is the what is the object that you hold your pottery up to to get a sun judge on? In your thinking, in your thoughts, in your theology, in your doctrine, in your beliefs, what is the sun that you hold your pottery up to? And it's simply this. We just sang about it. It's the Word of God. You were to hold everything up to the light of the Word of God. The lamp, the light of our path. That will show us how sincere our understanding is. 2 Timothy 3 is talking exactly about this. He says, this, this word of God, not only is it inspired by God, 
but it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness to, to prepare you to be complete, equipped for every good thing that you need to accomplish. And the context that those verses is found in, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul is telling Timothy, there's false teachers coming with false teaching. Get in the word. That'll prepare you to deal with the onslaught of false teaching. Because the number one defense against false teachers and their false teaching is the word. So are you in it? Are you in the word? So a moment of honesty in your own heart. Are you in it? Are you relying on somebody else's application, teaching, and presentation of it? Middle of February. That means most of us have long abandoned the Through the Bible in the Year program because we made it to Leviticus. And then suddenly our desire to follow the checkboxes was gone. Are you in it? How do you expect to be prepared for everything that Satan continues to throw at you if you're not in the Word? How do you expect to be able to look at this presentation that's being given to you as this is truth, and it's like, well, that's a nice guy, I'll take it. How can you take counsel from somebody who is trying to encourage you to a certain uh, decision or a certain process, and yet you have absolutely no idea what the Word of God actually says about it? You're just going to take him at his word. He is as weak and, 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 and damaged and sin-broken as you are. Anybody else uncomfortable yet? You need to be in it. The point that Peter is making, even here, is the defense against the false teacher's view that there is no judgment to come, that there is no day of the Lord to fear. Peter's point is you defend against that by having yourself anchored in the word. Look at verse 2. You recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the commands of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. He says, you know there's a day of the Lord if you've been paying attention to what the prophets said and what Jesus said and what the apostles said. You know there is judgment coming. Isaiah, the prophet said, Isaiah 13 says, the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction. Ezekiel 30 says there's, there's a day that belongs to the Lord and it is near. It is a time of doom for the nations. Joel chapter 2, the day of the Lord is terrible. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? You hear how desperate the prophets are to warn about this coming day of the Lord? Our understanding of the day of the Lord, our understanding of the judgment of God should never come from watching the news, which I don't know how that would work anyway. So, But it should never come from following a chart certainly should never come from the teaching of a person, even if it is your favorite teacher or preacher. See, those things are wax in our pottery. You need a sincere understanding, and that only comes by relying on the Word of God for training, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, equipped for what lies before us complete. 
Well, what you have here in the Word of God, we, 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 we celebrate the fact the way that God has spoken to us through His Word. You have 66 books that have been written, and every single book is working together to tell a single story. And that single story is that God is redeeming from the brokenness of sin and death humanity through the work and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And in his word, he pointed to a number of things. He pointed to the fact that there would, in fact, be a Messiah. He pointed to the fact that the Messiah would um, perform miracles. He pointed to the fact that the Messiah would uh, offer his life as an atonement for sin. He pointed to the fact that the Messiah would rise again from the dead. He pointed to the fact that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, would, would continue to spread around the world. But he also told us that there's going to be a day that he returns with both judgment and salvation. And that truth, obviously, is not going without opponents. Verse 3, above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and following their own evil desires. What are scoffers? They're people who scoff. That's why they give me the microphone. (laughs) They're, they're, They're cynical mockers who make light of things that should be taken seriously. They're ones who deny the the coming judgment of God. He says in verse 4, this is where we, we really gain an understanding of the argument that's going against him. These are the, this is their argument. Where's this coming that he promised? Ever since the, our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the, the beginning of creation. Well, really? I'm going to be judged by God? Where is he? I'm waiting. Come on, he's not done anything yet. I mean, it's the same thing over and over since the beginning of time. We, we're born, we live, we die. Where's God? Peter says, that's a scoffer. And those scoffers are fools. For they deliberately overlook, verse 5, this, by the, the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was, was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He says, let me, let me explain to you this. That the scoffers are making a willful choice to ignore history and in so doing are proving themselves to be fools. God is eternally existent. He's eternally involved throughout our history. And he, and he kind of lays it out. He says, listen, God spoke heavens and the earth were created. God spoke again, and and the waters and the land were separated. God spoke again, and he brought judgment on those who continued in their rebellion against him. And God will speak again. He will judge evil, and he'll bring salvation. Uh, Listen, though we can't, and we should never try to guess what God's doing in every historical moment that we live in, we can know that he's on the throne. We can know that he is holy, that he's loving, that he's, that he's personal, and he's guiding all of history toward a specific end. And by remembering that, by remembering 
what it is he has done. It protects us from the same foolishness of the false teachers. Peter tells us we also need to remember something very important. God's timing is very different than ours. It's a very popular verse. Verse 8, dear friends, don't overlook this fact. Uh, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. Just, just for the record, that is not an algebra equation that you're supposed to work out. But it is the picture of something that you and I know by experience, particularly for parents. Let me explain. Our youngest children cannot quite grasp what we mean when we say, shortly. Right? We're going to do it shortly. Is it shortly yet? Can it shortly be over? And it drives us nuts. So we created a rule, a law. I would like to refer to it as a law. It makes me feel very authoritative in my own car. With my children, that when we went on long drives, they were allowed to ask once on the drive, how long is it going to be till we get there? Now, what was really interesting is each kid got to ask once, and at the time we had four kids in the car, you could hear them bartering behind me. Like, I'll give you a granola bar if I can ask. Um, it's, it's so very, timing's different to us. And let me, let me, I'm going to get really deep philosophically for you, and you can pick this apart. I have already, but I think this helps. As humans, the feeling of time is measured against our actual existence. Okay, so try to follow this. <laughs> the feeling of time is measured against our actual existence. That is why summer seems to be so long for a five-year-old. But as a 45-year-old, it flies by. Because we are measuring those three months of summer against our total existence. Mathematically speaking, it's this. For a five-year-old, that summer is 5% of their total existence. Seems like forever. As a 45-year-old, that same summer isn't even half a percent of your total existence. So it just flies by. And what God is doing is he is viewing time against his existence. It's a very different thing than what you and I do. For a, for a 46-year-old, 20 years feels like forever. But to a God who is eternal, 20 years isn't even a blip. So who are you to demand that God acts according to your timetable? And why are you discouraged when he acts in his own timing? In the middle of that frustration of the, are we there yet, God? Can this be it? Remember that God has always been faithful to every single one of his promises in his own time. There's a there's a great saying that God is never late, but he's rarely early. Don't forget God's timing is different than ours. And, and not only that, Peter's trying to drive home. Don't forget, in the middle of this time where you're like, okay, God, we, we need the day of the Lord to come. And that's a terrifying prayer to pray. 
God, we, we need you to come right now. We, 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 we need to see Jesus right now. Bring down your judgment. Bring down your salvation. Renew all of creation. Redeem what is broken. We need this right now. And we cry out for that. And we forget, first of all, God's timing is different than ours. And secondly, God's desire is different than ours. Look at verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That the time that God has allowed to pass isn't him being negligent. It's him being patient. See, his desire is that all would come to repentance. Our desire is for swift, severe justice on those who deserve it, unless it's us. Because if it's us, we want patience, we want mercy. If it's somebody else, the longer we wait, the more unfair it is. God, strike them! (laughs) And what Peter tells us is that God's deep desire isn't fairness. God's deep desire is to extend undeserved mercy. Every day that he doesn't return is to be viewed as merciful. Merciful for the one who has refused him. Merciful for the one who has mocked and scoffed at him. Merciful for the ones who may have never heard. It's pretty ironic though, isn't it? These guys are using this to mock God. Well, where is he then? As if it means it's a lack of power, it's impotence of God. And in fact, that very phrase they're using to mock God is A, the reason they have air in their lungs, and B, the hope, the only hope that they have. God's desire is that all would come to repentance. Now, just real quick, don't don't confuse decree with desire. desire. Decree is the demand that something happens, and it's caused to happen because the one making the demand is God. So should God decree something, there ain't nothing going to stop it. His desire is what he wants, what he wishes, what he longs for. I believe in that desire, in that, that picture that we get in verse 9, that, that, that he does not want any to perish, I believe we get a, a very intimate picture and portrait of the heart of God. His restraint in returning should never appear to be indifference or impotence, but, but a patience that's meant to lead to repentance. You want to know how great God is? Some of the delay, some of what is behind the delay of God bringing upon us the day of the Lord so that some of the false teachers would come to repentance. Think of that. And that's the God who, who loves us. That's the God who longs for us. Peter goes on to tell us his patience will not last forever. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. The earth and the works on it will be disclosed. This this day, this day that Christ returns is so very different than his first appearance, isn't it? (laughs) 
That first appearance, he comes wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Everybody's sitting around. I'm like, oh, I wonder if this is the one, huh? Away in a manger. No crying he makes because babies don't cry. (laughs) That song's wrong, but that's okay. That's not the point for today. That's the first coming. The first coming. Oh, it's so peaceful. Right? Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. Our children dress up and they, they act in these Christmas pageants to declare the first coming of baby Jesus. The second coming looks dramatically different. Revelation chapter 19. Let me just read this to you. Just, just in your mind's eye. Man, I hope you do this often. Particularly with this passage. In your mind's eye, imagine what it's going to look like when God tears the sky open. Revelation 19, verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened. A white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head there were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He he wore a robe was dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe and on his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That ain't swaddling clothes. That's not sweet little baby Jesus. In the first appearing, God took on flesh. Jesus himself took on flesh and veiled his glory. In this one, there will be no veil. There will be no question. I wonder if this is the one. We will be invaded by the full glory of God. When? We don't know. Please know that. No one knows. In fact, Peter tells us it's like a thief. Last time I checked, thieves don't make appointments. They just show up. So you and I will be, uh, Matthew 24 says, you and I will be doing everyday things. Just everyday things. The monotony and the boringness of just another day. Much like 9-11. I mean, almost all of us who were alive during 9-11 remember the exact place we were when everything happened. I was in the Philadelphia region. It was a gorgeous day. Blue skies, big, white, puffy clouds, this gentle breeze. I was looking forward to that day with great anticipation because that was the day uh, my favorite day, my kids will be angry when they hear this, but the reality is, it's my favorite day as a dad. It's the day I get to see them in an ultrasound. 
That was the day Luke was going to become not just this thing that was really messing with my wife. But for me, it was going to fill my eyes and there's my boy. And then all of a sudden it happened. Right? There was no warning. There was no, it just happened. As horrific as that was. This is going to be amazing. And it should overwhelm us with hope. Because if you are in Jesus Christ, this is the moment of salvation. This is redemption. When, when he returns, the heavens and the earth. Now, now verse, verse 10, it's, it sounds pretty terrifying that the heavens evaporate with this really loud noise and, and, and earth is just crushed and, and, and the elements are, are dissolved. But, but what's happening in that moment is God is doing something amazing. He's not death-starring us like Star Wars. He's purifying what he's created. He's redeeming what has been broken. And when he gets done with it, oh, it's not even going to be recognizable. <laughs> Isaiah 35 says the desert is going to blossom like the finest of gardens. Isaiah 65 tells us that in this moment there will be no weeping, no crying. There's going to be this amazing thing that's going to happen that you and I actually have taken and be like, oops, wrong animals. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Do you know it never says the lion and the lamb lie down together in the Bible? There you go. You can study that later. But the wolf and the lamb will, will lie down together. There'll be no evil happening. There'll be nothing of a destructive nature there at all. Habakkuk 2 tells us the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. Re Revelation chapter 21 tells us that, that this amazing thing is going to happen in that new heaven and new earth after it is redeemed by God. God's presence will surround his people. He's going to live with us. That's what's coming. That's what we get to look forward to. And I know, you look around, that's not what you see right now, is it? You don't even need to turn the news on. You can just, just walk outside and you begin to see the effects of the fallenness of humanity, the effects that sin has brought upon creation. And that is true because he hasn't returned yet. But I'm telling you, he's coming. He's coming. So every time you see the opposite, every time you see our world that is drenched in sin, every time you see the world that is broken in its sin, every time you see the soul that is marked by just famine, every time you come face to face with evil, be reminded. He's coming. And when he comes, he's going to make all things new. When he comes, he's going to make brokenness unbroken. What a day of dancing that's going to be. Would you pray, Father, I thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I thank you that our hope is filled full, not because of anything or anyone we are, but because of everything and all that you are. I thank you that your promises are true and good and right. Thank you that we can trust your promises, not, not just with a blind faith, but we can look back at history and see how all the ways you've worked and moved and done things and 
<laughs> and then look ahead. Look ahead for that moment where you dwell with us. Lord, there is brokenness that surrounds us. There is brokenness in this room. And so today I pray as they, those who are experiencing that brokenness firsthand, that they would remember that you're coming. And your presence with them will be sweeter than it ever has been before. Lord, I thank you that you can take the darkest of situations, the most messed up of people, and do such a work in your redemption that there is dancing and joy. Fill us with that eager anticipation of seeing you face to face. For it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our blessed Redeemer, I pray. Amen. Amen.